The following message is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can visit us online at orchardbible.org. On Good Friday, there was a few people that were within arm's reach of Jesus. Some were mentioned in the description of that day, and their names are Simon of Cyrene, Mary Magdalene, and Joseph of Arimathea. In fact, for the most part in Christian history, they're known for what they did, the role they played on Good Friday. What a time to be close to Jesus. Simon is mentioned in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the other two, Mary Magdalene, as well as as Joseph of Arimathea, are mentioned in all four Gospels for their role that they played on Good Friday and that Easter weekend. Simon and his carrying of the cross, Mary and her staying close and faithful, her loyal love for Jesus. And of course, Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man that offered his tomb and took down Jesus and buried him. I just wonder what not only they experienced, but what they thought that weekend. Can you imagine if you took the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and, and you had a conversation with them. And you asked them, what, what did you experience yesterday? What, what was going through your mind yesterday? Well, as much as that would have been a, a great time to talk to them, I guess in my own mind, I would more welcome a time to talk to them some years later, 10, even 20, 30 years later. When, when the events of that day ended up being shaped by their growing understanding of really what happened. You know, I suspect that as Easter came and, and, and as they reflected back as the years went on, that they got it right about Jesus that weekend, but they got it even more right as understanding became more and more clear over time. Simon of Cyrene is mentioned, I said, in all three of the Gospels that begin, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And let me read to you what is said of this man who carried Jesus' cross. It said in Luke 23, as they led Jesus away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Mark adds just a couple more details As he records in Mark 14, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry the cross. Simon was from Cyrene, a coastal town in what today is Libya. It was 900 miles away if you took a walk from Cyrene to Jerusalem. We don't really know anything much more about Simon. We don't know if he was part of the Jews that had moved there 300 years ago. Perhaps over time he had become interracial because over time his family, some of them had married into those who were been in North Africa for longer. We don't know if he was dark-skinned or light-skinned. Maybe he had just moved as there as a young child. But he probably was back there for Passover. We knew he was a foreigner to the homeland that day. And he was probably there just coming in from the countryside. We don't know whether he had been working or just arriving finally from maybe an outside town now for the Passover. 
You know, if it was 8 or 8.30 in the morning and he was coming into Jerusalem, he was not part of that crowd, even a witness to the crowd that earlier in the day had just yelled, crucify him, crucify him. He may not even been aware of what happened just in the last 12 hours. Jesus arrests and, and mock trials and, and the parading before Pilate and the scourging and all that happened at the hands of Roman soldiers. I suspect he was a fit man, a younger man in his adult years. What Roman soldier would, would see Jesus exhausted from carrying a cross and, and look to an older man or someone who's, who seemed unable to carry the cross? So it's significant that Simon was probably a younger man. And if he had children, if he was married, I would suspect that they were still young. And so when Mark mentions that this Simon was, was the father of Rufus and Alexander, it tells us most likely the effect that, that this day had on the rest of Simon's life. It tells us that these boys, whether they were born or whether they were just still in their youth, ended up being ones who were known to Mark's audience some years later. In fact, even when Paul writes back to, to those in Rome at the end of the book, he mentions Rufus, one who he says was chosen in the Lord. And it makes us wonder if he was chosen because in God's providence, his dad was the one who carried Jesus' cross. If we see Simon in heaven, and he sure seems like we will, I suspect that that. One of the questions that will be asked of him over and over again by people was, what was it like to carry Jesus' cross? Because he'll be the only one there that could make that claim. Do you wonder what he experienced as he carried Jesus' cross? As he carried it close by him? What view he had of Christ? He was enlisted into service when Jesus was so exhausted he could no longer carry his cross. What a close view he had of Jesus' back that had been scourged. It didn't even look like a back anymore, just skin and muscle torn. What a look he must have, have had as, as, as he watched Jesus stumble and fall and soldiers kick him and jeer him to get back up. He would have heard the groaning better than anyone else, just a foot or two or a step or two behind Jesus, he would not have heard any cursing of God or man. He would have seen in Jesus, even in whatever distance that was, a quarter mile, a half mile, whatever the distance was, he began to see perfection in the as a response to such humiliation. Can you imagine what Simon experienced when in years in the future he may have taken communion like so many of us do on a regular basis at church? You know, when we take that, we take the grape juice, we take the wine, and, and we take a sip of it and are reminded of Jesus' blood and its covering of our sin in our lives. But Simon had a covering of Jesus' blood that we can't quite relate to, can we? Simon was the one that, that, that put on his shoulder a crossbeam, onto his clothes, leaning against his neck, a crossbeam that was saturated in Jesus' blood. 
And when that beam exchanged hands, no doubt his neck and the clothing on his shoulder and perhaps in the front garments were stained with Jesus' blood. And when Jesus fell in front of him, when Jesus was kicked by a soldier or, or, or slapped when he was struck by maybe a rod and told to get up and get going, it would have been Simon that was so close by that some of that blood, no doubt, splattered on the front of his garments. And as Jesus' blood drizzled down from a shredded head and a face beyond recognition, it would have been Simon's shoes that shuffled behind, leather now splattered with Jesus' blood. I found myself looking at paintings. I sometimes like to look at paintings that, that reflect a key biblical scene. I found none that satisfied me. It seems like the masters of old, when they painted this scene of Simon carrying Jesus' cross, they, they cleaned it up beyond recognition. It's, it, they, they cleaned it up in a way that Jesus barely looked like he was tired. He certainly didn't look like he had been scourged, and he was on the verge of, of physical exhaustion to death. I guess I'm bothered that, that we miss out on the accuracy when we look at a, a painting or, or envision a picture in our mind in which Jesus does not look like he's on the verge of death. But maybe what we miss out on the most in a painting or a picture like that cleaned up, looking so sanitized as we miss the intimacy that must have been there. We miss the intimacy of a dying man being thrust alongside a dying God. I don't know how long Simon lingered at the cross. I suspect if it was me, once I, my duty was done, I would have done my best just out of fear of sh shrinking back and, and falling back into the crowd, despite the blood that marked me as being his cross-bearer. But I suspect he did linger for a while to see just what would happen that day. Simon carried Jesus' cross, and he's forever remembered for that that day. Mary of Magdala was there as well. It seemed like she was there almost all the time. She was, was one that grew up in Magdala, a fishing village in uh, the outskirts of, of the Sea of Galilee, along the, along the Sea of Galilee. She was one that in, in Luke 8 we're told Jesus healed of seven demons. And in her faithfulness, in her love and devotion to Jesus, evident throughout the Gospels, it's easy why someone like William Barclay would say, Mary had sinned much, and she loved much. You know, the Old Testament, the Hebrew word hesed, is one that, that has been best described by two words put together in English, loyal love. And no one in the scriptures, it seems to me, is quite on par in Jesus' life with that demonstration of loyal love to him. 
We, we see it in Mark 15 uh, when, when even before they headed to Jerusalem, we're reminded that Mary Magdalene was one of those women who, who served Jesus in his ministry, followed him around and served him in a variety of ways. We're told in Mark 15 that they were a number of those women headed up to Jerusalem for the Passover. And they were there when all of Passion Week unfolded. Luke tells us a little bit more that as, as Jesus carried his cross, that, that there were some of the women, Mary Magdalene included, who were mourning and lamenting for Jesus as he passed ahead of them. John reminds us that along with him and, and Jesus' mother, that Mary Magdalene was there at the foot of the cross. And Matthew tells us that after Joseph of Arimathea had taken Jesus down, had transported him to a tomb nearby, and had put Jesus in the tomb, a tomb, a stone rolled across it. We are told that after Joseph and his helpers went away, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were still there, sitting opposite the tomb. She was faithful to the very end of the day, the last to leave. And then two days later on Easter morning, Matthew 28, it was Mary and, and one of the other Marys that before the sun even began to come up over the hills east of Jerusalem, she was on her way to the tomb. She may not have known how she was going to get to Jesus' body, but she was carrying some of the spices, hoping to anoint him and continue to honor her now fallen Lord. And finally, John reminds us as he was writing many years later as he looked back on the events and he recalls how Mary had run and found him and Peter and they and Peter and John had run and checked out the tomb seeing that it was empty and then it says in John 28 his own words we went home the disciples went back to their homes but Mary stood outside the tomb continuing to weep and her reward was not just seeing two angels that tried to console her, but seeing and being the very first to see the risen Lord when he said to her, Mary. What closeness she had, arguably more than anyone else in the events of that Easter weekend. Her reward was to be the very first to see Jesus after he was resurrected. And the rest of her life, she would be the one, I'm sure, that was told over and over again by people you can glory in your hesed, your loyal love for Jesus. Mary, you were rewarded for your loyal love that you showed your Lord. And what of Joseph of, Joseph of Arimathea? He's first mentioned long before he was born. 700 years before he was born, Isaiah talked about him when he said about the coming Messiah that he will make his grave with the wicked and his death and I'm sorry, his, make his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. 700 years before Joseph was born, it was prophesied that Jesus would, the Messiah would die, in this case among criminals, among the wicked, but he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And that's just what happened. Matthew lets us know that indeed Joseph of Arimathea was rich, Mark tells us he was a respected member of the Jewish council. That was, that was the most powerful, the most prestigious body of people that was there in Jerusalem and really over the Israel, Israeli area. 
But John tells us about him being a secret follower when he says, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. But things changed on Good Friday. No more was he a secret, a timid, a somewhat committed follower of Jesus. On Good Friday, it seems, and perhaps even in the days leading up to it, when, when, the, when his com- colleagues were plotting with increasing intensity and increasing uh, vigor the, the death of Jesus, it was Joseph that then decided no more would he, he allow himself to be a fearful and hesitant follower of Jesus, but he was going to abandon that and openly and wholeheartedly follow him. But I wonder if he knew what he would be in for when he asked for the tasks of burying Jesus. I've been around hospitals for over 30 years now in different contexts since my student days as a medical student. And I'm always amazed when when someone dies in the hospital and a couple of people from a nearby funeral home come to take the body to the funeral home. Uh, They often are dressed even better than I am, even three in the morning, to come and and take away the body. Not just dressed professionally, but I'm I'm always struck they're not just big, burly men ready to strong arm a dead body and move it from a hospital bed onto their hearse uh, stretcher. You know, the the sanitized and and instruments of the hospital allow a a lift to to take the body and move it from one bed onto their stretcher. No no effort at all, typically. And and the clean linens uh, make everybody stay clean and, and sanitized in the process. But Joseph, what a contrast of what he experienced. Because Luke tells us just what was involved with with his task. When he went and asked Pilate to allow him to have Jesus' body. Luke tells us just the things that Joseph committed himself to doing. Luke 23, this man Joseph went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He took it down, he wrapped it in linen, and he laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Have you thought about what this secretive disciple now turned wholehearted and open disciple decided to do. That he committed himself to figuring out how do you get a body, how do you get nails out of the hands and feet of a body attached to a wood block? How do you get the body down, especially in a way that reveres this one that you believe was God's son? How messy do you get when when you're trying to wrap a body that has has been mutilated, tortured, but still bears the mark in the seepage of a wound in the side, much less the torn-up scalp in the back, and you wrap it in linen? How easy is it to move that kind of body, even if it was just a short distance to the garden tomb, that Joseph had his, his, his tomb already hewn out of stone. How do you get it there without quite a bit of effort? Joseph, for too long, was hesitant to commit fully to, 
faith in Christ. But, but it seems that, that as that day went on before Jesus took his last breath, Joseph was preparing not only his courage, but even getting the linens and what he would need to bury Jesus. As if he was determined in Jesus' lifetime, that that would be the time frame he would be committed to standing for Jesus, even if he was rather late to developing that kind of courage and that kind of commitment. Simon, Mary, Joseph, each a different story, a different background, a different perspective on what they saw that day on Easter, on, on Good Friday. You know, I, I wonder if their stories uh, changed over time. You know, sometimes stories change, our recollections change, and it can be because memory fades a bit. But you know what, sometimes we recount something differently because our understanding grows. We tell it differently because we have more insight to what happened than when we were actually experiencing what was happening. Simon thought he had carried Jesus' cross. How many times do you think others said of him, even the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, Matthew, Mark, and Luke said, Simon carried the cross for Jesus. But as his understanding grew, I wonder if Simon insisted with increasing frequency on interrupting anybody who said, you carried Jesus' cross for him. And says, no, what really happened that day is Jesus carried my cross for me. It should have been me, rather than coming in from the countryside for the festival, it should have been me because of my sins, because of my rebellion against a perfect God. It should have been me who was carrying my own cross. But it was Jesus who was carrying my cross that day and dying for me. It said of Mary that she loved much, and I'm sure for the rest of her days. She was held up just as church history, and, and she is around the world, and appropriately so to this day, held up as an example of what the Hebrews revered and, and wrote often in the, in the Old Testament. The loyal love they knew is hesed. And on Easter morning, some would say then and even now that, that her said was rewarded. She got to see Jesus before anyone else. But I have to wonder if as time went on and, and she recounted what happened that day, she would say that it was not the loyal love that triumphed on Good Friday and on Easter morning was not my loyal love for Jesus. It was his loyal love for me. I'm sure her understanding grew as, as, as she grew in her knowledge of Jesus, just like the disciples, many of whom were her friends, who would look back with greater understanding on the events that they experienced. And I'm confident she would say, the loyal love that triumphed that day was Christ's, not mine. Joseph showed true faith as that weekend, having been a secret disciple, hesitant to commit to following Christ. But I think that he learned something over time. 
I, I just wonder if he felt the pressure, even though he did not get close to Jesus, perhaps before Jesus died, but he felt the pressure in Jesus' lifetime to, to take a stand and commit wholeheartedly to following him. But I think in time that he probably told others that the time frame of belief is not Jesus' lifetime. He's risen. He, he lives forever. The time frame for belief for you is your lifetime. And I bet you he would say, don't wait as I did, hesitant, only partially committed. Don't wait another day for wholehearted commitment to Christ. I think in their own way, each of them got it right to a large degree about Jesus that Easter weekend. But I suspect that over time they got it right more and more as their understanding grew. Is that true for you? It's an obvious question this Easter with so much going on, so much uncertainty of the world. But there are some things that are certain. And one of the things that is certain is what Jesus says of himself when he says that he alone is the way and the truth and the life. He made it clear what believing in him, placing one's faith in him, of following him is about. It is to believe that he was indeed God born as man, to believe that he came to die for each and every one who would place their faith and trust in Christ. And having believed, it means a change of life, a life that now is dedicated to following through with his commands and his demands on your life. Well, I want to offer an opportunity just as I conclude with a prayer that's been sometimes called the sinner's prayer. I want to offer the opportunity for you to pray a prayer maybe for the first time. Because Jesus is one that deserves your faith and trust. And so let's, I want to ask that we pray together. Dear God, I know I have sinned and that my sin separates me from you. I am sorry for my sin. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me so my sin can be forgiven. I believe Jesus rose from the dead and is alive today. Please forgive me, Lord, and I ask Jesus to come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. I will obey you, Lord. I will follow you, and I will honor you. And Lord, for those that are hearing this message that have place their faith, their trust in Christ, and, and Jesus is their Lord. I pray for each and every one, and in the times that we're all experiencing, that we would be reminded of how much uncertainty your followers had 2,000 years ago on an Easter weekend. How, how bleak things looked for them that weekend. How scared they were. And I pray that we would remind ourselves that the God who is in charge of Easter weekend 2,000 years ago is in charge, is in control, is seeing his purposes 
his plans unfold. And nothing, nothing in all of what we're experiencing has in the slightest way deterred that from happening. We pray these things this Easter weekend in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank you for being with us, and I do wish all of you a great and wonderful Easter weekend. Issues of worldview and politics. In a Q&A session, he was asked about how to have a conversation with a young person about sexuality in our current cultural climate. He responded by saying this, The first and foremost conversation that we should have with young people isn't what you should do and not do with your sexuality, but what you are for. To paraphrase the rest of what Stone Street said, if we just teach do's and don'ts, we'll lose every time because the culture is armed with an anthropology that sells and it sells really well. Now, Paul models this same order of operations for us. He points out the lies believed by the Corinthians, and then he gets to the rich, deep, breathtaking view of who we are as followers of Jesus. We're God's children, and we're going to be resurrected, and we'll have perfect bodies with Christ one day. We're members of Christ. We're his body, and we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. We must teach our children this. The Imago Dei, the image of God in humans, is what should resound loudly when we speak of why we value marriage the way we do and why we cherish sexual purity so much. Certainly this isn't just for our youth or children. All adults need this as well. Now Paul goes from pointing out lies that the Corinthians believe to giving a great doctrine of redeemed humanity. And now we see him give two strong imperatives for the Corinthians' reformation. These imperatives are really two sides of the same coin. And they come right after this bigger, bolder picture of who they are as image bearers. Now if the Corinthians, and if we don't get the bigger picture, reforming isn't hardly possible. Verse 18, Paul says, Flee sexual immorality. Well, Paul tells the Corinthians to flee from sexual immorality. Now, this is not a hard one to apply to our lives. It's pretty straightforward. We need to understand why we flee, and we've already gone through that. We've gone through the significant ways that sexual sin is a sin against our bodies. Now, how do we flee? Now, one pastor says that all young people should wear track shoes. When you feel tempted, run. You'll always be ready if you have track shoes on. Well, Paul's likely thinking of Joseph in Genesis chapter 39 when Potiphar's wife trapped him and tried to tempt him to sleep with her. Joseph fled, it says. When he faced temptation, he hightailed it out of the situation he was in. I think, flee, I think of fleeing as our strategic defense against sexual sin. I've met hundreds of men and heard many stories of women who've struggled with sexual sin all to varying degrees. And I'd never heard a story from a person where they said this, 
I was surprised by the temptation that I faced today. No. Most people know exactly when and where they face temptation sexually. And this is for both men and women. It's foolish to not do something about it ahead of time. If you have no strategy for fleeing the temptation in those moments, you will continue to fall. So the question is, do you have a strategy? Now, if you don't have a strategy, call a brother or sister in Christ and make one. Come up with a strategy. The armies of the Allied forces didn't arrive on the beaches at France and then come up with their strategy all of a sudden, did they? No, they, they thought through ahead of time what they would do when the battle came to them. And when they showed up, they needed to be ready to fight. Now, if you don't have a strategy, is it because your heart is naive to the schemes of Satan and the wiles of your flesh? Or if you don't have a strategy, is it because you don't really want to stop sinning sexually? Now, the other side of this coin comes to us in the closing words of our passage for today. Glorify God in your body. If our defense against sexual temptation is the strategic plan to flee, our offense is training ourselves in godliness to glorify God with our bodies. This looks like purity. This looks like dwelling on the richness of what we have access to in Christ. Now we have his Holy Spirit in us to guide us and direct us in moments of temptation. And one of the ways that I think it's most effective to derail temptation in your life and glorify God in your body is to set your mind on something better than the illicit pleasures that lure you away. Start by taking the thought captive and doing this lie versus truth analysis that Paul has modeled for us. And then set your mind on Christ and go do something else. One common question that young people will often ask when they're dating, and it's actually a really good diagnostic heart question, is this. How far is too far? Meaning, how far can I go physically with my boyfriend or girlfriend before it's too far? <laughs> the one asking usually doesn't know it's diagnosing a heart issue. Honoring God with our bodies doesn't mean we push as close as we can to the line. It means that we want to be pure. <laughs> Honoring God with our bodies means we ask the question this way, how pure is too pure? <laughs> how can I make every interaction, whether it's via text, phone, video, or in person, so pure and holy and honoring to God and my significant other? We can ask these same types of questions in marriage or in singleness. How can I honor God in the passions that I feel in my body today? Now, it might mean we do things that don't rev up our sexual engines when there's no healthy God-honoring outlet for sexual activity. Now, maybe you're married and your spouse is out of town for a while, or maybe your spouse is going through a health problem that limits sexual intimacy. Or maybe you're single and while God has made you sexual, you're in a season of life where sexual intimacy really has no place. That's okay. Our sexuality isn't the only thing about us. We have a high calling to flee temptation and glorify God in our bodies because we bear His image. And His image in us is much more than our sexuality. 
Some of you need to hear that again. His image in us is much more than our sexuality. And this is Paul's call here to the Corinthians when he says, glorify God in your body. Be holy in all the things that you think or do, whether you're single or dating or married. We've been redeemed and we bear his image. So glorify God in your body. Now our redemption in Christ is what makes this personal reformation possible. We have liberty now to not sin and to live obediently to Christ. And Paul points the Corinthians to their advocate. He's done so numerous times in this letter so far. In chapter 5, when Paul strongly rebukes this church for allowing and boasting in sin inside the church family, he does so while reminding them that they're the new lump. They've been made new. They're Christ's now. In the first part of our chapter, Paul says that he's speaking of the Corinthians' lawsuits among the church family to shame them. (laughs) This is such strong and personal language. And Paul takes them to the cross to remind them that this isn't who they are. That despite their sin, they have one who's rescued them from it. They have one who's given them a new nature now. In our text for today, Paul again has strong words for the Corinthians about sexually immoral behavior. And again, Paul takes them to Christ. Verse 19 and 20. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. Now that message can be tough for us to hear. This is tough to hear for the one who's bristling against God. It angers the rebellious heart to hear that you're not your own. You aren't the Lord. If this is you this morning, there's only one way to fix it. Submit yourself to Christ. Bow to his lordship. Confess your sin and confess your need for a savior. Living as your own authority, as your own master, will not equal joy and thriving. It will only deepen your slavery. You are not your own. The one who hears this this morning and feels broken and is hurt, looking back at sexual sin or current sexual sin or current struggle with sexual sin, look no further for redemption and healing than Jesus. If you've turned from your sin and in faith followed Jesus, know that you have been bought with a price. That price was the precious blood of God's own Son. He paid your debt, and now you are not your own. What a joyous thing that we can rejoice in. What a tremendous truth that you've been set free from bondage, and now you live within the joyful embrace of your Savior. The Holy Spirit indwells you, and when Satan comes to remind you of your sin, you swing your sword and recite this, that I am not my own. I am Christ's now. Because I was bought with the precious blood of the Lamb. The Corinthians needed to know of their advocate in the midst of this struggle with sin. And we too this morning, we need to know that we have an advocate 
and that we've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. If you're listening this morning and you recognize your need to be freed from bondage to sin, and you have yet to place your faith in Christ, you are invited by Christ himself to receive salvation in him. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Flee from immorality and honor God in your body. If this is you this morning, please reach out to one of our pastors or another Christian who can help you understand this life-changing truth. Let's close in prayer. Father, this is a good word that we need. We're thankful for the reminder that though when we struggle, uh, it's hard, and, and sometimes we don't know the way to defeat temptation, your word guides us. And we know that Christ has paid our debt. He's paid the penalty for our sin, and you've set us free from bondage to it. Lord, I pray that today and moving forward, your spirit would lead us in this. Give people courage to own up to their sin and to lay them at the foot of the cross and walk freely with Jesus. We're so thankful that we can even pursue this. We're thankful for your patience with us as we grow in godliness and Christ-likeness. We pray all these things. Amen.